This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about the ballet dancer and choreographer they called an Amazon of the avant-garde. Starting out in revolutionary Russia, working in wartime Kiev, and then coming to Hollywood in the 30s, Branislava Najinska, the long-neglected sister of the legendary dancer Vaslav Najinsky. She had an amazing life, and for that story, we turn to Lynn Garofola. She's Professor Emerita at Barnard College of Columbia University, a dance historian and curator. Her new book is La Najinska, Choreographer of the Modern. We reached her today in New York City, Lynn Garofola. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Well, let's start with ballet in Russia and how it was transformed by the currents of revolutionary politics there, starting with the 1905 revolution. And this means starting with Diaghilev's Ballet Russe and their revolutionary conception of what ballet could be. Well, I think 1905 is is a really important year because there were a series of strikes throughout the imperial theaters at the Alexandrinsky Theater, which was a drama theater and always a little more liberal left than the very aristocratic Mariinsky Theater where ballet was. But nevertheless, there was a student strike among the ballet students, including Nijinsky. And a number of the other dancers uh, went out on strike in solidarity. And in fact, a number of dancers were dismissed as a result of 1905. So you sense that as a result, there was a kind of restiveness in the um, group. And this created a new group of uh, dancers, dancers with other expectations, with the sense that ballet was something that could, that was malleable. It wasn't frozen into the stultified forms of the uh, 19th century. In other words, you could have the Sleeping Beauty, but you could also have the Rite of Spring, which was obviously very, very different. So this was the world that, in a sense, formed Nijinska, and we're working with her brother on some of his innovative choreographies, being, in fact, kind of the clay for his experiments, the physical clay for his experiments, that she, in a sense, had a practicum in how do I learn to choreograph? (laughs) You know, you didn't have composition courses as you do throughout the dance field in colleges. But this was a kind of practicum in how you begin to think about taking movement apart and reassembling it. Then in 1917, the Bolsheviks seized power. You found a treatise that Najinska wrote apparently in 1918 about movement, kind of manifesto. It's still an amazing uh, document. Tell us about about that and about what was going on in Russia, in Russian ballet after 1917. Well, obviously what was going on in 1917, we know, the nation audience knows what was going on in 1917. And this too affected all aspects of, of life. Um, it, is, it affected the arts, the visual arts, and I think a key person in Nijinska's, what you might call transformation at that point, was her encounter with the visual artist um, Alexandra Exter. And I think this really opened Nijinska's eyes to, to other things that were possible, that you had to get rid of all of this kind of literalism, that one could begin to think about pure form 
and that this pure form could rely on technique. I mean, it's kind of unusual there. And this 1918 treatise, which was never published and which was really an attack on ballet as she knew it, both the imperial ballet, but also the Fokine ballets that she had seen. And there, there's also implied an attack on her brother, on what she calls uh, the cocottes, meaning the prostitution that was going on within the ballet world. And certainly there was prostitution in the imperial theaters in this, I mean, high level prostitution. There were favorites. There were the grand dukes would have this and that and well-to-do men would have mistresses, sometimes boyfriends. And her brother was caught up a little bit into that. And of course, his relationship with Diaghilev was one uh, was a romantic one as well as a professional one. So when Nijinska is saying that, she's saying, I want no part of that world. I know what I want no part of this older form of theater dance. And I want no part of these ideas that I myself loved initially of, of mm-hmm. Fokines and it, to move forward. My favorite lines that you quote in the conclusion uh, are 1918. I want senseless acrobats to become creators again and professionals should be destroyed. Yes, <laughs> professionals should be destroyed. Professional was her her dismissive term for people who were trained to be ballet dancers, trained in the imperial theaters, trained, who had the full training. I mean, she respected them because she knew the work that went into it, but that's not what she wanted. She wanted intelligent, educated dancers. And then she went to Kiev. We know a lot more about Kiev now than when you started this book. What was a Kiev in 1921 and, and why did she go there? Well, first of all, she had gone there in 1915 because she had returned uh, from the West. She was no longer with the Ballet Russe. She and her husband were living in St. Petersburg and they needed a job. World War I had just begun. And they got a job at something called Narodny Dom, the People's House, where uh, they were choreographing for operas. And then they began looking around for a better situation. And they went to um, Kiev, where she was the ballerina and he was the choreographer or ballet master, as he was called. So they were there until 1917. And he seems to have gone his way. There was certainly a split in their relationship. And then she decides to um, go to Moscow and try to rejoin her brother. But she needed exit visas and all of this. Now, it's very interesting that she wanted to go legally, because at that point, lots of people from St. Petersburg and um, Moscow were fleeing um, Russia, fleeing the revolution and going first to to Ukraine, which had declared itself a republic, and were turning Kiev into a really, a very, very exciting uh, place artistically. And then from there going to Odessa and then abroad. We now understand that geography. A lot better. She couldn't get, she was able to get an exit visa for herself, her children, her her one daughter and her mother. but But she couldn't get transit visas across France and through other countries. So she herself now reunited with her husband, danced for a while in Moscow, and then they went to Kiev because, as they said, food was more plentiful. 
but a lot more people were there. And also in that kind of open moment, she was able to establish her own school. And this she called the school, not of ballet, not of dance, but the school of movement, uh, which says how she was really trying to think through what it was that distinguished dance in all its form. What was movement? She thought of herself as a supporter of the revolution, but she ended up fleeing from the new Soviet Union to the capitalist West. And we need to fast forward now to 1934 when Nijinska comes to Hollywood for the first time. One of my favorite parts of the book, she was 43 at that point. She'd been asked by the famous exile Austrian film director Max Reinhardt to choreograph the ballet sequences of the 1935 film version of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. This became a legendary movie starring James Cagney, Olivia de Havilland, with 15-year-old Mickey Rooney playing Puck, really an unforgettable part. What was it like for Najinska to work on a big Hollywood movie with some of the top people in the industry? Well, the one I think she most cared about was Puck, because I think she felt she could turn him into a dancer. Of course, why would he want to become a ballet dancer? But nevertheless, she definitely felt he had the makings of a fine ballet dancer. She was delighted to be invited to Hollywood. It was a very European group that she was surrounded by. I'm sure they mostly spoke uh, Polish and uh, French with a little English thrown in. So I think she would have been at home in that atmosphere. Also, you know, she had worked with often with dancers who didn't speak Russian or French. And she would often say it's demonstration, it's touch, it's um, showing that where I convey what it is that I want. And she managed to do that over and over and over again until the very end of her life. She had left behind a slew of debts and Hollywood enabled her to pay off those as well as support her children because she had two children in Paris. You know, she was the breadwinner for the family. And after World War II, of course, came the Cold War when Russian ballet dancers who defected were big news. The Dancer Defects, one of my favorite books about this period. We have to talk about Balanchine and the politics of Russian exiles in ballet in the United States in this period. Balanchine was one of the first defectors before the Cold War. He started, of course, the American Ballet Theater in New York City. During the Cold War, Balanchine played the part of the anti-Soviet defector to perfection. Nijinska was not, not actually that interested in the defectors. She didn't really talk much about Nureyev. What really excited her was to see the Bolshoi touring and, and to meet people like the ballerina Galina Ulanova. In fact, there is a photo of Ulanova and Nijinska in Nijinska's backyard in Pacific Palisades with the ocean in the back. Um, so this excited her enormously, but what she couldn't understand was how they could have such wonderful companies with such a high level of technique and such terrible choreography. <laughs> and she began working desperately with Ulanova and also with Rigorovich, who now is considered the oldest traditionalist um, ballet master, but at the time was very young and was considered a newcomer to um, stage her ballet Les Nos at the Bolshoi. She really wanted that. So in a sense, she's a friend. She had a number of contacts during the period of the thaw 
with Soviet people, with um, the Soviet um, historian, ballet historian, Vera Krasovskaya, and she reunited through correspondence with many of her students, her former students from the School of Movement in Kyiv, who by then had come to Moscow and were living there. So she re and she donates a few things to Russian collections from her own collection. So she clearly did not have the strong anti-Soviet uh, views of many of her of many of her uh, colleagues uh, in the ballet world and and elsewhere among the emigre communities. One theme we've neglected throughout this period: she is a woman in what is pretty much a man's world. Modern dances, Martha Graham and Mary Vigman, but that's not really the case for most of the ballet world that she's come out of. The ballet world is more complicated than that because on the one hand, you have, a, you have these huge corps de ballets, you have these companies with many, many women. However, what she objected to was both the one was the ballerina role, that this is the only role for a woman in, in ballet. And of course, she insisted not only on the ability to choreograph, in other words, throw a few steps together, but to have a vision of where of what a ballet was and where it could go. And this is why she kept struggling to have her own company. So she could put these dances on the, uh, she could create these dances without someone saying, oh, no, 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 I have an idea for this ballet or for, for that ballet. But it meant that she was again and again being betrayed, I mean, to use a word <laughs> like that, that they were giving her a hard time. She constantly had to start from the beginning. And it was never, you know, she could never seem to get a secure position anywhere. And I also think there were tremendous problems with some of the men um, in the companies, not only with the administrators, but also with some of the male dancers, unless they had worked with her and understood that she could give them a great deal. Many of them just challenged her authority. I mean, there's a story of Jerome Robbins walking into one of her rehearsals at ballet theater in the early 40s in New York and sort of sauntering around. And she was livid furious. And then, and he never, you know, and then eventually he went to the bar or something and she was fit to be tied. Of course, in his later life, that's exactly how he behaved. I mean, he would not tolerate that kind of behavior in the studio whatsoever. He'd throw a chair at someone. <laughs> but she was also criticized for being tough and for in, um, imposing discipline uh, and while and she was never criticized, she was criticized in a way that other choreographers, such as Anthony Tudor, such as Michelle Fokine, such as Robbins himself, um, who perhaps um, exemplified the same kind of studio behavior, if not something much worse. Last question. Why do you think Nijinska did not leave the same kind of cultural imprint that Balanchine uh, did? In the review of your book in The Nation, Jennifer Wilson's explanation of this is that Nijinska, quote, would never fully acclimate to the strictures of the supposedly free world. Her spirit never left Kiev. 
close quote. I wonder if that's the way you see it. Well, I, I do think there is something to that, that her spirit remained in Kiev and that she kept trying to recapitulate that moment of freedom in her studio and that sense of sharing and of openness and uh, an openness that was free of market forces um, again and again. But I also think it's because she was never able to get a company she never was able to have a long-term association with a company. And works survive when they're created or maintained in a company for many, many years. That's why Balanchine had a huge imprint. He had the New York City Ballet, which he founded in 1948. It's still around. <laughs> Nijinska's companies kept, you know, fleeing. You know, they kept dying, um, including those she thought would would live her association with ballet theater was in some ways fortunate because La Fille Magarde, her first work for the company, actually survived many more years than I thought it had. But then eventually it was re the ballet was re-choreographed and there went Nijinska's ballet. So this again and again happened to her. And I think that's the worst thing for choreographers, that there's no place for your dances to be performed. And unfortunately, the recording technology was not good enough. Um, we have snippets, poor snippets of her choreography during the 40s and early 50s, but we have very, we have no sustained sense. And the only two ballets that remain in repertory, Les Nos and Les Biches, have done so because they were revived, they were restaged at the Royal Ballet in London in, 19, in the 1960s. And they were notated, they were filmed, and they were performed again and again over time so that they sang roots in the um, in the company and in the minds of the audience. Lynn Garofola's new book is La Najinska, Choreographer of the Modern. You can read about it in the nation's book issue. Lynn, thanks for talking with us today. Oh, well, thank you. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.